Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and with James Holland. Um, oh, well, we, uh, by the miracle of the internet, we're being linked up to literally the other side of the world. James, who are we talking to this today? Well, I'm really, really, really excited about this one. We have got an old mucker of mine, Steve Ballinger, MBE. And Steve um, is a Brit, ex-army, um, one of the directors of a company called Clear Ground, which clears mines and all sorts of horrible ordnance, which has been left behind by wars, um, and for which he's quite rightly and deservedly been given the MBE um, a year or so ago. And um, Steve now lives in Queensland, which is why he's out there. And I know Steve because when um, some time ago I was doing some filming on Guadalcanal, he came over to make sure that we were safe. And before we were allowed anywhere near the old bloody ridge and uh, um, um, galloping horse and all the rest of it, um, Steve had to give us a a briefing and it was the most horrible warning lesson ever. We had a little slideshow of all sorts of nasties with someone who'd put a bullet in his face and other bits of body parts had been blown up by treading in the wrong place. And so when we were out on Bloody Ridge, you know, out came the sticky tape, out came the kind of markers and metal detectors and all the rest of it. And it was amazing how much stuff was still there, wasn't it, Steve? 
Uh, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me on tonight. Um, well, tonight, my time, early morning, your time. Yeah, I mean, Guadalcanal was absolutely fantastic, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So, yeah, thanks for that intro, James. You know, I, I do appreciate it. But uh, it was fun. Oh, no, not at all. But the, the reason we're, the main reason we're talking to you now is because you have cleared Peleliu. Uh, and for those who don't know, Peleliu was, was an absolute slog fest, god awful battle. Um, from the middle of September to the latter half of November 1944. Um, it was just an absolute slaughter. Uh, it was the 1st UN um, U.S. Marines Division, the 81st um, U.S. Army Infantry Division, um, against effectively a, a, an enlarged brigade of, um, of of Japanese. And basically the Japanese just held out. Um, and basically all the Japanese were killed bar 202 that were taken prisoner and 62, I think, who were survived the whole thing, including 34 who appeared only after the end of the war. And Palalu's really interesting, I think, because it's, it's one of those battles which really started to give the Americans a marker for what was to come the closer they got to Japan. Because Palalu and the islands is part of that archipelago of Palau are, were actually Japanese. And they defended it unbelievably doggedly. And, of course, what follows then is Iwo Jima and Okinawa and all the rest of it. And it's one of the things, that, you know, Al, you and I have talked about a lot. You know, it starts to kind of um, have a huge influence on everything that's going on in the war, including that on the Western Front and, and why the Americans are so, and particularly, but also the British are so reluctant to kind of storm Berlin and all the rest of it because they know they're going to have to invade the Japanese home islands. And then there is the kind of sort of, you know, the, the, the atomic bomb comes along and, it, and it's kind of safe. But everyone is bracing themselves for this escalation of just god-awful violence. And Peleliu is really kind of one of the big markers that, that, that gets them thinking, OK, this kind of whole storming a beach and, and all the rest of it ain't going to work anymore. And, and these Japanese are simply not going to roll over. And Steve, your job has been to clear this tiny island. I mean, it's, it's, it's pin drop size, isn't it? Was it about three miles by a mile or something of all the ordnance that was left over from this terrible battle? Yeah, so it's, it's seven mile by two, so 14 square miles in total. And... Um... Yeah, let's, let's just call it a challenging environment, to say the least. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to work in uh, many theatres of operation, clearing up ordnance from around the world, uh, particularly in Middle East and Africa. But when I, when I got to Pelalu, that was a whole new ball game. Um, uh, people describe it as, as the most pristine battlefield of World War II um, ever. Uh, and, and really... For me, as an EOD technician and an operations director of a, of a charity, uh, we had to adapt and adjust to many different things uh, between what we would normally do in a clearance operation. Uh, because of the state of that battlefield, we weren't able to use machines like flail machines. We weren't able to blow things up where we find them. So obviously, that's the safest way to get rid of things. We had to take into account many different things, and in particular the environment, with with Palau being very high up there on the um, environmental world stage and trying to do things right. So, yeah, drew on a few a few reserves there, a lot of challenges, um, and an entire decade to clear that one island. Um, we actually, you know, we removed in excess of. 66,000 items of ordnance from the island of Peleliu. 
Um, and we started <laughs> clearing on staggering, the 60th, isn't it? On the 65th anniversary of the battle, and, and finished shortly after the 75th anniversary of the battle. So you know, it's who'd have thought all that would be in in someone's backyard? And literally, it was in people's backyards and being used as wedges to hold doors open in the school, and you know, items on government officers' desks. You're being used as paperweights, which are, in fact, were actual live hand grenades or. Japanese knee mortars or American, you know, 60 mil mortars and things like that. Um, and that's just touching on the tip of the iceberg. So I'm sure we'll get on and discuss things in more so, detail. So, so had the, had the, the island not been, the, not been cleared after the war, or there been a rude, you know, like a sort of perfunctory effort to clear all the ordnance, or had the Americans simply moved on to the next place? Because obviously, it's about the the battle's about getting hold of the airstrip and making sure the Japanese don't have the airstrip, isn't it? So, did they then move, not bother? Is that what's happened here? Well, in a nutshell, Al, yeah, basically, you've got to remember. Oh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not teaching you guys to suck eggs. I mean, it was a very fluid campaign, the Pacific campaign, and and you know the Marines and the 81st had to move on. You know they crack on the battle's moving let's move with it um and it was very 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 limited clearance um i mean whole areas basically the the umabrogal mountains where the the 608 cave and tunnel systems were the japanese built was basically taboo land you know the stories were when i rocked up on the island of Palu, that's where the the boogeyman lived uh, and so you didn't go there and, mm. and that's traditional custom sort of storytelling passed down from generation to generation that you don't go up to those hills, you know. Um, in actual fact, the storytelling was was basically the boogeyman was the unexploded ordnance, explosive remnants of war and anti-personnel landmines that were up there. Um, so it's, it was really, really interesting, especially in, in such a tiny, tiny area. You know, to put it in perspective, virtually every household uh, on the island of Peleliu either in its house or in its land where they grew vegetables, you know, or in its back garden, had live ordnance in it. Uh, and people were starting to become a little bit complacent because it was old and and uh, they're like, well, it hasn't gone bang yet. Well, that's because you haven't moved it. You haven't touched it. <laughs> so, And you made the very good point to me when we were in Guadalcanal that the older it gets, the more dangerous it becomes because things start to rot away. Uh, but, but the... But the explosive in it is just as potent as it ever was. Yeah, exactly. Um, who, you know, who'd have thought landmines and that would would still be around sixty five years after they've been put in the ground? That's a great industry to be in, isn't it? You know, hey, we these still work. I mean, when we talk about <laughs> deterioration, um, particularly with with white phosphorus ordnance, you know, it's obviously very thin cased ordnance, and over time, corrosion, just like you know. Your front left-hand wing off your Ford Capri car is probably rusted through by now. You know, the outer casing, <laughs> the, the white phosphorus grenade rusts through. And, you know, once that air gets in, it ignites the phosphorus, it burns down, it'll hit the detonator, and, and then the whole thing will initiate and set the jungle alight. Or one of the, one of the jobs I did was some white phosphorus hand grenades at the, the main power plant on the island that initiated, you know, started to burn out, and, and uh, we needed to prevent them from initiating before they cause any damage so to the main power supply <laughs> well what do you do how do you stop a phosphorus grenade from uh from i, I like i like this initiate it's a very um it's a very sort of uh, a circumspect word how do you stop how do you stop a phosphorus 
pile of phosphorus grenades from going off, is what I'm going to say. Wait, well, you need to remove the air from the, uh, from the um, getting into the, into the phosphorus, because that's what yeah. creates the, the burning. Now, obviously, this is going out to a very wide audience, audience um, and so yeah. you don't really want to tell people how to put out phosphorus grenades cause, who have no skills and, and no expertise. So let's yeah, just yeah, say yeah. you've got to remove the air from, from entering or being in contact with the phosphorus. Sorry if that's a bit of a... And identifying... No, 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 that's no, no problem at all because, I mean, obviously EOD is, EOD is entirely specialised in something that, that um, it, you sh- definitely should not try at home. Um, the... the <laughs> As it, as it were, but I mean, it, you. So, so have you got? Have you? I, I'm just just trying to think about how you go about this. You've got a. You must have an inventory of potential weapons and ordnance that the the Americans and the Japanese both will have used. So, so there's a list of things you're looking for, or a th- list of things you're likely to run into, and then a series of strategies to deal with each of those uh, things. Was was it? Was there anything there that 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 you weren't expecting or were there was there more of something than you than than other things i mean what's the you know it, i mean it's, it's interesting a, a whole lot of this hasn't gone off after all so you know obviously you use mines to deny the enemy a certain area or a certain passage and all that sort of thing so obviously there are going to be unexploded ordnance but what you know what i mean i, I i'm i'm just sort of uh, boggling at what what your job is and how you even start you know uh Take us through it, Steve. Yeah. I mean, I'm, this yeah. is amazing. Happy to, Al <laughs> and James. Uh, James probably got a bit of an insight into it anyway. Um, so, where do you start? I mean, you can't go and, and clear an entire nation. You know, I mean, Peleliu is, is one of 350 islands in the archipelago of, of the Republic of Palau. You can't go and clear the entire country. So, already we've drilled it down to the main battle sites, which is, which is the island of Peleliu. I mean, obviously, there was the... The, the pre-invasion bombardment um, up on the main islands uh, back in March and April uh, and also in August of 1944. Yeah. But, so let's just take Pulu, where the main battle put, took place. The US dropped, just the US alone dropped 2,300 tonnes in the three days of pre-invasion bombardment um, and they were looking for key sites. So what we do, so we've drilled it down by understanding the battle, drilled it down to Peleliu. That's seven miles by two miles. Again, you cannot clear the entire, every square meter of that. So you need to start reading um, bombing reports, radio logs, re- reading the books like Helmet for My Pillow. It gives key locations. All your historical research, and we work with historians such as James. Um, we had some ex-US Marine Corps historians working for us. Uh, the co-founder of the organisation studied all the, the bombing reports, looking at actual footage um, of the actual every bomb that was wow. released had had a photograph taken. So that helped with our underwater clearance, especially when they were trying to plough itself. And Pulu has huge shoreline, so you could actually see if they missed the target and a bomb dropped in the water, whether the bomb exploded in the water. So basically, what you're trying to do is drill it down from 14 square miles. Drill it down to a smaller place as possible. Now we already know that uh, they expected to take the island, you know, in three to four days, and, and it was a very fluid battle around the beaches. Um, and the main resistance happened up in Bloody Nose Ridge or Umabrogal Mountains. Um, so we've we've drilled the heart of our clearance operation. Obviously, we started on the beaches, 
um, we followed the fluid flow of the battle. Obviously on the beaches we found a lot of uh, anti-invasion mines, uh, a lot of grenades, a lot of mortars, a lot of small arms ammunition, that sort of thing. Uh, but the more we move up through the airfield and into the, and into the south east corner of the ridge where they started hitting the, uh, the caves, then we grid off the entire Umabrogola area and grid it off into what we call 50 meter by 50 meter boxes. And what you do is you do a 10% check of those boxes. And if you start finding ordnance, then you'll check every single part of that box. Um, and obviously, you know, the terrain itself is pretty harsh, you know, limestone coral ridges that tearing your boots apart, the humidity, the high temperature. I mean, we're looking at plus 30 every single day of the year and 100% humidity every day of the year. But ultimately, to answer your nutshell, answer your question in a nutshell, you've got to drill it down into manageable size chunks. You've also then got to look at what is the post clearance use of that land that you're clearing. Is it? Are people going to be digging on it? So we actually cleared uh, a pipeline for a fresh water drinking pipeline. So that clearance we need to clear deeper than if someone's just going to construct a wooden hut or if it's just tourists walking over it on a jungle trail. Uh, we also cleared um, a mass, massive solar farm on the island of Palu and also the island of Angar, which is where the 81st Infantry fought for three days. Um, so obviously there's construction involved there, so we need to dig down to certain depths uh, and that's generally a minimum of a metre because that's how far down your um, foundations are going to go in for construction purposes. It's just absolutely amazing. And, and Steve, how many, how many Palauans actually lived on Palalu when you turned up? That's a moving target. <laughs> how many Palauans physically lived well, there? Well, sort of roughly, you know. Said they lived there. Yeah, no, roughly uh, 200 people lived on the island full time. That, that would expand because there's not a lot of work on Palalu, you know. Uh, no. the, the employment hub is up on the mainland, which is three hours by, by public ferry away. So at the yeah. weekends, the island population would explode. Maybe up to 1,500 people would, would spend their time at the weekend. But obviously by Monday morning, the island population drops back down to, to 300. Right. Um, you know, and, and, and what about you? Well, we all travel for work, don't we? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, what about you? You're, you were living on Palalu, weren't you? That's right. Myself and, and my wife, who's the co-founder of the, the organisation, um, and her job is harder than mine. She's got to find the money for us to work. Um, so we lived on the island full time for 10 years. Um, we did get back to Australia and England occasionally, normally once, once a year each way. Um, and we employed, uh, at the height of it all, 32 uh, Palauan nationals who we've trained up. So, you know, these guys are men and women, you know, good gender policy, etc. Uh, men and women trained up from not knowing really what ordnance looks like or how it functions up to physically disarming live ordnance by the end of the project uh, and, and being self-sustainable at the end of it. And what's it like living on, su uh, you know, sort of the best preserved battlefield of World War II? It's, it's quite awe-inspiring, actually, you know. It, it, I didn't find it, it wasn't a job. You know, it, it, it was a pleasure, really, to be involved in that. To, my wife and I and our medics and, you know, 
who are expats generally, um, we'd spend the weekends just going around and just trying to learn more and more and more about the battlefield. I mean, there were some really interesting offshoots to the actual explosive ordnance disposal project itself. You know, we, we, we wanted to educate ourselves more, not just to do with the battle, but island culture, island life. Um, and, and, you know, living on a... You can't call it a desert island because it was full of jungle. <laughs> but living on a remote island is, is quite life-changing, really. Um, yeah. It, yeah, because you've, you've got to do without... Makes you level-headed. Yeah, yeah I've, I've been doing that quite a bit, living in crazy remote places, I suppose you could say. <laughs> West Africa in particular. <laughs> so it was, it was quite different, you know. And, and Palauan people are, you know, they're really good people. They're really community-spirited and family orientated and, and willing to share you know knowledge and and, and everything really um, and it was good you know for for my wife and I to be able to spend those 10 solid years and, and understanding the Pacific as well because we, we didn't just work on on uh, on Palau. we we did in conjunction with the Pacific Island Forum and, and other donors such as Australia go off and, and look at the Marshall Islands and, and look at Kiribati um, and, and wow. see the, the problem elsewhere, and obviously the Solomons as well. We, when you were there, James, on, we managed to link up on, on one of my visits as well. So yeah, so yeah, I mean, living living in a twenty foot by twenty foot, I hang a bit of that, you know, in modern time, six point three meters by six point three meter wooden hut, uh, twenty one steps from stepping into twenty nine degrees centigrade ocean. It was pretty tough, as you can imagine. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in a second. You must know the history of this battle completely inside out then, because you've essentially traced its steps from from the beach to the mountains. Um, what do you, I mean, what, what do you think of the way it was fought? Did the Americans, did the Americans have any other options other than the way they did it? Because after all, the Japanese do this thing of letting them in at the beaches, essentially. And the Americans think, oh, well, this is going to be, this is going to be a doddle, don't they? It's what, what, what first happens. And then, of course, it, 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 gets, it gets very bad before it ends, doesn't it? Is there, it, it, I mean, what's your, what's your feeling about the battle? Because you know, you, you, mean, you know the island inside out. You know the landscape inside out. You know that, and you've seen that the sheer expenditure of um, ordnance and munitions. What do you think about the battle, Steve? Well, you know, Al, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? <laughs> but well, of course it. Uh, well, uh, well, of course it is, and and, inev- and inevitably, inevitably, we end up, we end up um, uh, d- doing a fair bit, doing a fair bit of hindsight. But 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 what's your what's your what's your feeling on it? I mean. Uh, because because there's this there's this school of thought that they should have just not bothered that the, the Americans were wasting their time uh, and people and, and or or is this as James said at the start is this the a crucial lesson that the Americans have to learn that you know this is what it's going to be like from now on and and in a way you know that in another way the path to the atomic bomb begins here because it's clear the Japanese aren't going to give in cheaply. No, exactly. I will. You know, they say Palau's of negligible strategic value. Yeah. Was it? We don't know. Like I said, we've looked back. We can look back at that. I mean, there were some key characters and, and personalities at play involved in, you know, taking Palau. So 
let's just give the scenario that the decision had been made to take Palu. They achieved their objective by the morning of, yeah. of day four. They took the airfield, uh, you know, but, you know, momentum, and we all know U.S. Marines credit where credit's due. They, they, their battle flow is constant. It just keeps going. They keep driving forward no matter what. And, and obviously that's what's happened. So alternatively, you could have done a siege. You know, yes, there have yeah. still been casualties, but perhaps nowhere near as, as many. Yeah, I don't think the, the Japanese casualties would have changed, but the, the US Marine Corps or the US military's casualties um, wouldn't have been so high. Alternatively, you could have just kept bombing the Umabrogal Mountains without yeah. uh, anyone stepping foot on it. Um, that would have probably took just as long, um, if not longer, I should imagine. But uh, that would be my two key things. I, if, you know, the alternatives were a siege, I mean, they could have kept, could have, could have kept the Japanese Imperial forces perhaps pinned down uh, by doing a siege and starving them out, uh, denying them yeah. exit routes from the Umabrogal Mountains. Uh, and a second one would have been just a, massively bombarded with napalm and um, yeah. um, cluster munitions, um, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. to keep them at bay. I mean, yeah. Rupertus, who's the uh, commander of the of the 1st US Marine Division, I mean, he's a really interesting character because his life is just sort of absolutely riven with personal tragedy. I think he lost his son and has he lost his wife as well? And he's sort of, you know, and this is his... And, and, and these personal tragedies have got in the way of his career and finally he's got this chance to you know, lead the first Marines in battle and, and, you know, resist. It doesn't just, it just doesn't pan out how, how planned. Um, and it ends up being kind of one of the most appropriate named operations ever because the, the, the code name is Stalemate 2. And of course, you know, 10 weeks later, that's kind of slightly what everyone's feeling. So there's all these sort of, you know, I mean, it's one of the things that makes a battle so interesting is all these, these, these sort of amazing personalities. And then you've got um, Nakagawa, who's, the, you know, the half colonel who's commanding the Japanese forces. So you've got kind of two entire American divisions plus, you know, air forces, naval forces and all the rest of it against you know, 11,000 men. Uh, and, you know, it's so it can only ever be one result. But from the Japanese point of view, it's about holding out for as absolutely as long as possible. And I can't remember what their pre-battle estimate was, but it wasn't very long. And although the airfield gets taken in, the main objective gets taken in, in what is it, four days, I think it is, Steve? Um, as you say. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously the whole battle, the whole island, this tiny seven by two island is not subjugated for another, another ten weeks and... You know, it's a kind of it, so it ends up being a sort of slightly pyrrhic victory for the Americans in a way, uh, and, and to a certain extent, you can say to the Japanese, "Well, it's kind of sort of job done." You know, these guys they, they all knew they had to sacrifice themselves. You know, their job was to hold up the Americans as long as possible, uh, and actually, they held them up for far longer than they could have ever possibly conceived as we would be possible. But obviously, a large part of that is this incredible network of tunnels in the hills. I mean. Crikey, what are they like, Steve? I mean, you must have been all over them, haven't you? Yes, James. Well, I mean, that was a massively interesting uh, aspect of the project. But just going back to the briefly touching on the Japanese there, I mean, credit where credit is due. Those guys, you know, they did fight to the death. And, and some of the prisoner of war reports were that 
all the Japanese forces had their, their dog tags taken off them, their identification tags taken off them, because they, and they were, they were going to be sent home because none of them, they were told none of them would, uh, would be leaving Peleliu alive. Uh, so imagine being told that. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. You've got no option, have you, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but going, wow. on, going on to the, the caves and the, and the tunnel systems, I mean, Colonel Nakagawa, his, his uh, Fukura strategy, the defense in depth strategy of, of developing these natural caves and, and building new caves with these Korean and, and Okinawan um, labor force, you know, the pre-planning that must have gone into that and just going around and seeing the strategic placement of each of these caves. I mean, there was 75 mil guns in these caves on the top of, you know, 50 meter cliff faces. You know, so how they got them up there is beyond believable. So they're uh, still there when you got there, were they? Yeah, so we found 75 mil guns in the caves with their, their wooden wow. spoked wheels, um, with the metal rims, the wooden spokes had all deteriorated away, but the guns were still pointing in the direction of their arcs of fire. Um, concrete bunkers literally dug into the side, you know, constructed into the sides of hills. And, you know, the, the command cave, um, the, you know, where the radio rooms were and everything else. It, it's just phenomenal structures. And this is something that no um, charity clearance, ordinance clearance charity had ever come across before in the history of humanitarian clearance. So, you know, we had to develop complete new standard operating procedures um, to be able to do this. And, and the first cave that we went in to clear um, which was funded by the British is, is the Thousand Man Cave at, at the northwestern edge of the island of Pelham. So that was the headquarters for the 14th Infantry Division in there and also the hospital cave complex in there. And that was a series of H-shaped caves linked together to form this massive right. cave and tunnel complex that could house 1,000 people in there, 1,000 soldiers. Um, that was now inhabited by bats and everything else. Uh, you know, bats and still IEDs and, and mortars and fuse racks and the, the section where the, the operating theatre was still there. Uh, there was personal effects and, and everything else. And we actually, that was the first cave we came and started to locate human remains, um, Japanese human remains. Um, and that was another offshoot of the, the entire project. So, Steve, it's just—it's just all there. It's literally like frozen in time, just rotted away. But but everything has been left. Yep, you, you, there was beer bottles, sake bottles, you know, rice bowls, mess tins. Uh, Amazing. Water bottles uh, and and everything else was all there. Um, and our and our policies—we're we're only there to deal with ordnance. So everything else is. Is, is left in place as it was. And, and we did a lot of tremendous work with um, Aberdeen University who came over and did two um, island surveys of, of the Battle of Peleliu as well. And we found them, uh, I think we found them an extra 200 sites on the battlefield that hadn't been recorded previously as well. Um, yes, so massively interesting. So you, so you're sort of partly an archaeologist as well, in a way. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, basically, Al, you know, yeah, part, partly an archaeologist. I suppose our clearance methods are, are similar 
but perhaps a little bit more safety involved to archaeological <laughs> clearance and excavation techniques. Well, because that, because that, I mean, you, you mentioned IEDs there. That was something I was going to ask. Is what, there must be? There must have been a lot of IED booby trapping stuff going on um, by by the Japanese. You know, if they thought they might lose a position or be overrun, they they fill it with booby traps surely did you encounter a lot of that and uh because you know you say you find a a, a set of ordnance you know on a on a beach in a bunker that they there must be booby traps too so you're, de- you're not only you're dealing with unexploded stuff that's not meant to explode you're also dealing with unexploded stuff that's meant to explode if you see what i mean <laughs> yeah pretty much yes you know in a nutshell yeah we found a considerable quantity of IDs ranging in, in different types of initiation system, whether they were command detonated um, by an individual, you know, uh, applying electric current to a device, or or whether they were modified uh, pieces of ordnance with um, pressure switches attached to them, you know, pressure applied or pressure release switches attached to them. I mean, you've got to remember what 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 the Americans did to resolve this god awful problem of the Japanese imperial forces coming out of a cave firing a few rounds taking out a few guys dashing back into the cave where they're undercover you know you can't you can't get them so the american response was to the use of flamethrowers but we can't forget that you know based on what i found the japanese also had flamethrowers on the island of Pudalu. so the, the, the american response was to flamethrower the entrance to a cave and maybe throw in a, a couple of flashbangs, you know, a few Mark II fragmentation hand grenades or some white force grenades to, you know, to, to finish the job off. And then the cave was, some of the caves were bulldozed sealed. So I know, you know, I'm fairly certain, you know, you're sat in a cave and you managed to survive all that and you know you're not getting out. Well, you're going to lay a couple God. of improvised devices for anyone that tries to get in later on, aren't you? Um, yeah. And we did find that. I, I had the, the huge honour... Um, at the request of the Emperor and Empress of Japan to unseal the very first cave to be unsealed since 1944 when it was sealed on, on White Beach. Um, and that was really interesting, A, to try and find the exact location of the cave entrance after it had been bulldozed. Um, but just just the process of, of, of unsealing that cave in a safe method, dealing with the ordnance that we found uh, as we excavated the entrance, and then being part of the, you know, the identification of the six Japanese soldiers that were in that cave, and and their personal effects, and uh, and the repatriation of of the skeletal remains, was, wow, it was an amazing, yeah, amazing. experience. You know. Gosh, wow! And do you know? Um, so you found out about these these guys, and you you know their stories, and and so on. Well. Pretty much, basically, it was the the gun commander for the the twenty mil anti tank gun there, uh, and his crew. So it was an officer and five men. Was my understanding that the feedback that we got, um, but it but it was tremendously uh, an in, tremendously important thing thing to happen. And obviously, the cave was was resealed um, at the end of it all because you know. Is it a war grave? It's a tomb, effectively, it's, isn't it? It's, it's a yeah. tomb, yeah. That, that Great choice of words there, James. Yeah, it's a tomb, basically. How absolutely amazing. And what did you do? With, I mean, what, I mean, you must have come across so many human remains up here, particularly up in the mountains, I'm guessing. I mean, what, what do you do with them? Or do you just leave them in the cave as a war grave? Or do you get them all out and send them back to Japan? Well, how it works is um, 
we, if we come across human remains, no matter where it was, um, we initiate what's a human remains report. Uh, that's, that's then passed up the chain of command. It, it gets sent to the um, Palau Bureau of Cultural Affairs. They then pass the reports on to the US and the Japanese. And then what happens is it's normally a, a joint mission. We, we don't actually move the bones. Uh, so taking a step back, if we if we find bones, we'll we'll create a map of where those bones were found. So if it's inside a cave, we'll draw a, a map. Uh, we'll map the entire cave using um, lasers and, and and distance markers. Uh, and within that cave complex, we'll then log exactly where each each bone or fragment of bone is from a set date and point within the cave itself. Um, and all that information is then passed up the chain and generally what happens is within uh, perhaps a month um, representatives from, from each government will come out um, and they'll identify with their anthropologists and archaeologists if they believe them to be Japanese or American um, and then the process begins then from where they're rep repatriated to. So we worked with um, organizations such as uh, Bent Prop, an American organization which is now Project Recover. Um, with a gentleman called Dr. Pat Scannon. Um, and then we worked with the Japanese Ministry of Health, Labour and Welfare with a variety, variety of different people. Um, it was quite a changing process. And um, the veteran societies of Japan as well, they would send people out, um, such as uh, Mr. Kagiyama as, as well. He came out quite a lot. Um, and yeah, it was, it, was, it was a real sort of sense of achievement, you know, I'm, I'm ex-military, as you said on the introduction there, James, and, and to know the effort that's gone back to rep repatriate personnel and, and military personnel from both sides uh, of the conflict is, is a credit, to be honest. Yeah, amazing. It's, uh, it's just incredible. I mean, I'm just sort of, I've just got a sort of vision of this, this sort of time capsule that you're coming across with, uh, and just, just, I mean, sort of, it must just be so profoundly moving to come across it and to realise that you're the kind of first people to go in there, probably, you know, since the battle happened. I mean, I mean, how many how many human remains are you talking about? I mean, you talk about hundreds or thousands that you you've come across. Definitely hundreds, without a doubt, without a doubt, hundreds, uh, predominantly Japanese. Um, I think the estimated figure from the Japanese Veteran Society is there's still between three and a half thousand and four thousand. Uh, soldiers um, or serving, well, you know, former serving Japanese infantry, still unaccounted for on the island of Palau alone. Um, and I think the US are now down to between 80 and 100 on the island of Palau now that they're still looking for. So we're still talking considerable quantities of, of personnel, aren't we, really? Yeah, and all that stuff, you know, you were talking about going into these caves and finding radio equipment and personal effects. Stuff. That's just been left there, has it? Yep, that, that's just been left there, and obviously there is there is a concern of, of looting, uh, or potential for looting, let's say, because Palau has some pretty strict laws. Um, so anyone that thinks they can just rock up on, on the island of Palau and, and, and walk off with stuff, uh, it carries a pretty hefty 15,000 US dollar fine if you're caught removing anything or, or attempting to take it away. And, and yeah, exactly, quite right, quite right too. You know, this is history. Um, and you've got to remember as well, you know, Palau, uh, and particularly Palau as a whole, 80% um, of Palau's GDP is made up from tourism, be it diving tourism or World War II tourism. So if you take away, or anyone thinks they can come and just take away these artefacts and remove the history, 
then you're removing not only the history for others and generations to, to follow through and see in this pristine battlefield, but you're also taking away the income of, of tour operators and, and the support and logistics of that whole economy for a very small... God, I'll tell you what, I mean, I remember talking to you about this when we were in Guadalcanal and you were saying, oh, you've just got to come to Palladio. Boy, is this kind of, you know, salivating the prospect of going over and just seeing this. And, and you know, where, where can you go and see a, a, a Second World War battlefield which has still got everything pretty much intact? I mean, you, you just can't. Um, wow. And you were doing all this stuff in the sea as well. That's the other thing that kind of, you know, it's not just the island. It's, it's off the off the coast. I, I remember you showing me photographs of kind of sort of huge piles of stuff that you'd found in the sea. It was about to be sort of blown up. Yeah, exactly, James. <laughs> Again, it was yeah, really interesting because we weren't just dealing on land. We were dealing mangrove swamps. We were dealing in, in the ocean, you know, the, the pristine Palawan Ocean, which is... Um, pretty amazing and going back very slightly out of what sort of cleanup was done at the end yeah. of the battle very little and what was done was generally just put on barges and you'll see the photos in the national archives registry in arlington of ordnance just being pushed or thrown off off these barges just off off the coastline of Um uh, right. so we found some quite large dumps of ordnance you know things up to anything from from you know grenades up to two thousand pound aircraft bombs that we needed to to get out very carefully out of the ocean because we couldn't blow them up in the ocean because we would destroy no potentially destroy you know unique dive sites of the world um and, and then obviously there's the pressure changes there's everything else and on top of that the saltwater crocodiles the sharks there's um, <laughs> remora fish which just you know, the big limpet fish which attach themselves to you while you're trying to chisel an aircraft bomb out at 35 metres deep in the ocean. <laughs> Slightly distracting. <laughs> but, uh, it's absolutely yeah, really incredible. I, just, I don't know how you're still here, to be honest, Steve. I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, what was the... I've got to ask this question. I know it sounds a bit inane, but I mean, you know, you must have had some pretty hairy moments, didn't you? Um, yeah. Uh, it, it, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a saying in EOD, explosive explosion, initial success or total failure. So uh, you always <laughs> got to make sure you know what you're doing and make sure you, you do it right. We, we did a really interesting job in, in the middle of Koror, up, uh, on the main islands, in the capital city of, of Palau. Uh, sorry, when I say the capital city, it's the, the population hub um, of, of Palau, where 10,000 people live and, and and just 800 meters up from the main hospital we found a, a booby-trapped um, Japanese uh, depth charge weighing 427 pounds and uh, it was surrounded it was on the edge of on the edge of a beach and the edge of a taro field and the closest house was 42 meters away um, now we were unable, or I was unable, to defuse it um, to enable the safe movement from it. So there was no way you were about to pick it up and bounce it through the town and, and try and get out somewhere else with a, with a live fuse mechanism in it. Um, so we, we took the command decision, along with all stakeholders, including the, the president of Palau and all the relevant agencies, such as the Ministry of State, to blow the item up in situ. Um, now, 427 pound depth charge going up is is going to create a lot of 
problems if it's not done properly. So that did draw on, on all of my, my skills and the knowledge of, of all of my contacts within my network as well. Um, and what actually happened is we, we spent two weeks um, building protective earthworks around the, the item to channel the blast away from all of the houses um, and over the top of the beach and over the top of the ocean um, so that we could to get rid of that. Uh, so two weeks and 65 tonnes of earth later, bearing in mind the closest <laughs> we could get a vehicle was the 42 metres away from uh, the house. So everything had to, we had the soil delivered, uh, the sand, and then you would put into small sandbags and you'd walk you know, down a slope across a little stream to the device and start building your sandbag walls. And the whole community got involved. But ultimately, it kept me awake at night for many nights, checking and rechecking and confirming the calculations involved to make sure that yeah. could happen without blowing anyone's windows out or cracking anything. Um, and, it, and it worked. We evacuated from the close proximity uh, three and a half thousand people. Uh, but God. but we got the job done, and it went bang. You know, um, after yeah. six, yeah, that was sixty-seven <laughs> years after it had been put in place. Like so, yeah, that was uh, a hair-raising moment. God, it's God, just incredible. Amazing. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, I remember kind of sort of gawping and being completely agog when we were first talking about it in Guadalcanal. But but honestly, I mean. I, hats off Steve I mean what an incredible job I mean I suppose I suppose the, the other thing I just wanted to ask you was who, who pays for all this I mean who's who's paying for you to, to, to do it I know you're a charity and, and an incredible charity too um uh, you know and I'd really urge everyone to sort of get on your website and check it out but but you know who who's funding this good question James and you know the entire job is teamwork. It, it, you know, it's not just me. It's, it's teamwork, and I'm unable to do my job of training locals and to get on and clear ordnance without um, my, my my wife and, and co-founder Cassandra McEwen. She, her job, as I said earlier on, is harder than mine. She has to go out and persuade donors, and, and primarily they are international governments. Um, and persuade them and remind them of their obligations under the Ottawa Treaty for Anti-Personnel Landmine Clearance and the Oslo Treaty for Cluster Munition Removal, remind them of their obligations and, uh, and tap their aid budgets and uh, tap their environmental budgets to just give us the money to operate. Yeah, you know, it, it's a long time. This, you know, people think of post-conflict clearances, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and, and Sudan and Syria, you know, and, and that's happening straight after the conflict. Who, who thought that after the Battle of Pulu, the first proper proactive clearance would take place 65 years? And that's post-conflict clearance for displaced persons. So, but you try and persuade a donor that, you know, you're up, you're up against Afghanistan, you're up against the Iraqs and the Syrias and you know, everywhere else. So, you know, it, it's hard, but I, I take take my hat off to Cassandra, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, something we um, I, I wanted to ask as well, Steve, is what's the Japanese attitude? I mean, you said you work with the, with the Japanese government and the and the the imperial. You, you've had input from the from the emperor and, and so on, and permissions and all. That. But what's the Japanese attitude to this battlefield? Because after all, their their commemoration must occupy a very different um, uh, 
space to American commemoration, which I think we're all very familiar with how the Americans go about commemorating their fallen. What did the Jap- what did the Japanese do? How do they, you know, how, how do they get to grips with this? And how does that then re- feed into what you do? Well, on the island of Peleliu, there is the the area called the Japanese Peace Park with a big memorial. Um, and the Japanese yeah. are very, very involved in Palau and particularly Peleliu. The battle is yeah. very, very well remembered. There's a, the very, there's a very professional display in the, in the Battle of Peleliu Museum. It, it, it holds a special place in their heart, without a doubt. You can constantly, week after week, get Japanese visitors come down. They go to the the Shinto shrines and the memorials, they pay their respects and they go to the, the administrative headquarters building of Colonel Nakagawa. They walk the jungle trails that we did, just like other tourists do, but, but they seem, they're very connected to Palu and, and without a doubt, I, I think there's, um, it's moved on, you know, the, the, the younger yeah. generations getting to understand it. Perhaps it wasn't so much in the forefront. You know, I, I did um, a week with a, a manga cartoonist, quite a famous manga cartoonist, and I apologise, the name evades me right at this moment in time, um, who was doing a piece on the Battle of Pelalu to go into the, the manga cartoons so that the young, younger generation could understand it a bit better. So without a doubt, you know, the, the Japanese um, are very attached to Pelalu without you know, without any doubt, and and it does hold that super special place in their hearts. Do you think? It, do you think it's it's more in their kind of consciousness and part of the kind of narrative of of Japan in the Second World War than than other islands in other battles? Yeah, I think so. I, I you know, when you look at some of the other battles and and that, there, there were a far greater percentage of survivors uh, of the Japanese forces. Uh, the fact that it was near total annihilation of every Japanese soldier, sailor, airman um, on the island of Palau is does create that significance in in the Japanese mind, I think. Well, Steve, that's just been absolutely fascinating. So, so, so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we, we get a lot of historians on and people who know about battles and things like this, but, but for someone who's actually kind of been on that time capsule cleaning cleaning it up and getting rid of the ordnance and stuff. I, it, wow, I mean, what a treat for us. So thank you. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much, Steve. Yeah, no, thank, thank you guys. I mean, what you guys are doing is, is absolutely fantastic, getting a message out there to such a wide audience. You know, history's amazing. You know, we can't, we can't forget it. and We have to learn from it. So let's hope we never have another battle of battle, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.